we are carrying on in our study in the book of Daniel and we're up to Daniel chapter 8 so get your Bibles turn to chapter 8 the scriptures will be on the screen but it's good to follow them through in your own Bibles if you can as well Daniel chapter 8 is an incredible chapter Uh, and I guess in a sense we could argue that every chapter in the book of Daniel is uh, such because uh, there's so much depth here, there's so much to learn. Uh, God has really given us a real treasure uh, in this account because not only do we have the history, uh, and we'll talk about that again in a second, uh, but we have this incredible prophetic insight into all that is going to come, as well as a lot of prophecy that has already been fulfilled. Now, a lot of people uh, talk about prophecy, uh, but one of the key reasons that God has given us prophecy is to be an encouragement for us. It's to give us that confidence that God really is in complete control. And many of the prophecies that we'll be looking at this morning have already been fulfilled. The lesson that we learn from this is that if God has fulfilled these things, as were given to Daniel some 200 plus years before the events took place, then we can be sure that he's going to fulfill in just the same literal manner, the prophecies that he's given concerning the days in which we live. We have real confidence in the Lord our God. Now, it's been about two years since Daniel's vision that we saw in the last chapter. That was the first vision that Daniel has, or at least that's recorded. Daniel has interpreted a number of dreams for Nebuchadnezzar, for Belshazzar, and so on, uh, or the, the writing on the wall for Belshazzar, and so on. So Daniel's already done this for others, but now he's been given these visions of his own. God is entrusting him with this glimpse into the future, just as in the New Testament, uh, particularly for the Apostle John in the book of Revelation. He is allowed to see glimpses of things that are yet to come. It's around about 550 BC, 550 years before Jesus came. All right. So that's the, the, the period of time we're in. We're kind of the closing days of the Babylonian Empire at this point. Uh, and Daniel is now about 69 years old. Uh, if we look at the chronology, we've seen already that we've got the um, history books. We've got the prophetic or the, the visions uh, kind of grouped separately. So the first six chapters of the book of Daniel really deal with the history uh, and then we go on to the next six chapters from chapter seven to the end of the book, uh, which, again, don't follow chronologically, um, but they're grouped this way so that we have the history originally in the first six uh, chapters. And then we have these dreams and these visions. And of course, it's in this section. Chapter eight occurs and we're going to be introduced to this vision of this ram uh, and this male goat. Strange kind of ideas, uh, but we'll see how they play into uh, the whole scenario as we go through. Uh, Just a reminder that Daniel's ministry had endured for a considerable length of time. Uh, Daniel had been in this uh, position of authority and importance in the Babylonian Empire, but given that role by Nebuchadnezzar, but stayed there through the successive kings uh, that had followed on. And now Belshazzar, the last king of this uh, Babylonian Empire, he was the king, if you remember, back in chapter uh, five, we saw the details of how that writing on the wall and his kingdom came to an abrupt end because of his um, idolatry, because of his arrogance and rejection of God uh, and using those vessels from the temple for his own pleasure and so on. Um, but once again, Daniel, around right about 69 years of age. Now, I thought it might just be helpful just to have a quick glimpse of the history of these times. Now, uh, if we look at the timeline there, uh, you can see uh, on the, the screen, hopefully, uh, this. No, we should be able to look. So right back at the beginning there, this is where Assyria falls to the Babylonians. That's 612 BC. Six years later, we get to that time where Daniel is taken, when Nebuchadnezzar marches against Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar becomes the king as his father dies, and Daniel's taken to Babylon. Uh, we then get to Belshazzar uh, becoming king. In 553, and we're looking just a little bit into that reign now uh, as this prophecy occurs. But then a short time after this, the Babylonian Empire falls to the Medo-Persian Empire. And we're going to see this prophesied, foretold. Um, We have a number of other Persian kings that follow on from Cyrus. 
Uh, and uh, one that's really significant from a prophetic point of view is Artaxerxes. This is this decree that's given in 445 BC. It's recorded in the book of Nehemiah. And we'll look at that in detail next week, uh, Lord willing, in chapter 9. Very, very significant because it's the command to restore and build Jerusalem. Although Cyrus had granted them permission to return and to start the work, nothing had taken place. It's not until this decree in 445 BC that that work actually gets going. Um, but then we get on to the Greek Empire. As the Persian, Medo-Persian Empire falls, so the Greek Empire comes onto the scene. And of course, Alexander the Great is the one that we're familiar with from history. If you remember, if you listened to school... Uh, we'll talk a little bit about Alexander the Great this morning. Uh, incredibly short uh, tenure for Alexander. He dies at the age of just 32 uh, in Babylon, uh, by the way. So Babylon was never destroyed. Uh, that's prophetically yet to happen. Uh, but this incredible period of time. But what we're going to see is going down that timeline, we're going to meet a character this morning by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes or Antiochus IV. Very, very significant historically. Jesus refers to the events of this time in Matthew 24 when he's talking about the end time. So it's really important that we have this kind of understanding of history. Some of you may, may love history. I love history. Uh, others may not enjoy history. But the reason I love history is because I see God working throughout. We see God engineering all these circumstances. Now, just to give you a kind of a picture, um, we've got the books in the Bible that cover this period of time. Uh, the historical books that we're familiar with, we've got the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. Of course, they deal with the return after the Babylonian captivity. So from round about this point here, you can see roughly there, roughly from that point on, the Jews return home about 537 BC. Again, we'll speak about that next week, uh, Lord willing. Um, that's the history that's covered by Ezra and Nehemiah. And of course, the book of Esther uh, is a book of history as well. Uh, which occurs a little bit later on. Uh, and then we also have the prophetic books that cover this time, the book of Haggai, Zechariah and Malachi. Um, so from a biblical perspective, there's um, a lot of overlap in these things and the themes and ideas carry through. So if you know a little bit about those books, it will help you understand the time that all of these things were going on uh, and so on. Right. We also are entering into uh, the times of the Gentiles at this point. Now, strictly speaking, we can argue that actually began in 606 BC. That's the point when really the Gentiles are the ones who are overseeing, uh, ruling over, uh, dominating and oppressing God's people, the Jews. Uh, it's the times of the Gentiles. And it's a, it's a phrase that we get uh, from the book of Romans. And we're told that the times of the Gentiles are going to continue up until all the Gentiles that are going to be saved are gathered in. Then God will start dealing with Israel again. And maybe in another study, another time, we'll talk about the specifics of why and when and so on. And when will the time of the Gentiles come to an end? When will all the Gentiles be gathered in? When will God start to deal with Israel again? Very, very interesting, very significant, but we don't have the time this morning with the other things we're going to be looking at to go into all the details. But just be sensitive to the fact that we are in a period of time now where um, the Gentiles are, are in the ascendancy, as it were, are ruling. Uh, particularly, this is in regard to God's people, the Jews. Um, they're under the, um, the control of Gentile nations. And of course, that chapter two vision that we saw of this great image, uh, the head of gold, of course, Nebuchadnezzar uh, and the chest and the arms of silver, which is represented the Medo-Persian kingdom. And then the Greek empire represented by the belly and thighs of brass. And then we get the iron, but we have the two legs. Of course, we've got the uh, Western and Eastern arms or legs, to be precise, of the empire. And then we have this interesting mix, these feet that are made of iron and clay. And it speaks of a time yet to come, a revived Roman Empire. Now, the interesting thing, again, as I mentioned, I think last week, that we need to be sensitive that the Roman Empire had the Western side of it, which we're familiar with. Of course, we think of all that took place in uh, Europe and, of course, in England with the Romans and the, the Roman Empire really uh, in the West 
wasn't so much defeated as just kind of broke up into various parts and each part took its share or took its time in ruling and reigning. Of course, the British Empire had its day, um, France had its time, Spain had its time and so on. Um, but there's going to come a kingdom out of this, but not just the Western, but also the Eastern arm, which includes many of the Muslim countries that we think of today. We think of Iran, of Iraq, we think of all the countries in North Africa. That all makes up what made the Roman Empire, and from these ten toes are going to come ten kings, as it were, that will rule over the earth. Now, how they'll play out, we're not quite sure. There's lots of interesting thoughts and conjecture. It may be ten countries. It could be ten geographical regions that are ruled over uh, by some sort of government authority or whatever. But however it plays, this is yet to come, and the Bible speaks a lot about these things. But what we're going to look at this morning is in a zero in, in a sense, on the um, silver and the brass, Persia and Greece. So this is the section that we're going to see in Daniel's vision. But the interesting thing that we see is that in the Greece part, there's a model laid down, a real event, a real situation that occurred historically, but it's a model of something that is yet to come. So this is a very significant, again, for us in our days now. Just to remind you, these are the kings of Persia. We've obviously seen Cyrus, this king that becomes uh, ruler of the entire empire as Babylon crumbles, as uh, as we mentioned earlier, as Belshazzar um, effectively capitulates. Uh, and then Guberu, or D Darius as we understand him to be, is placed in control of the Babylonian region, of course, and it's under uh, Darius in Babylon that we find Daniel serving there but also thrown into the lions all of that occurs we've seen chapter six already we then get this kind of reign of uh, Persian kings um, there's some um, shenanigans going on there's some skullduggery it's a kind of interesting tale historically of the things that go on the the ones that are most interesting of course mentioned Cyrus uh, but Darius the Great's here um, is very significant because he gives the permission for the rebuilding of the temple. It allows it actually to take place. Um, so uh, that's significant. And then, as I mentioned, we have this Artaxerxes Longimonus, uh, Daniel chapter 9, we'll get to next week. Very significant because that's the command to restore and build Jerusalem, not just the temple, but the whole city. Really important. And again, Nehemiah, very much uh, a book that focuses on that. But we're also this morning going to talk about Xerxes. Now, this is a king that we're familiar with from the book of Esther, um, but we'll see him uh, occur in these prophecies. Now, the important thing to remember as we look at this, we're going to be covering a lot of history. But for us, it's history. For Daniel, these things haven't happened. He was in Babylon. This Belshazzar was still the king. We hadn't got to Cyrus yet. So for Daniel, everything we're about to look at was looking at stuff that was going to be a couple of hundred years in the future. Now, just pause and think for a moment what it would be like for you to try and give some uh, um, meat and bones to a vision that hasn't yet got any kind of uh, traction in your own mind. So Daniel's seeing things about a nation that to him is just a small little state. It'd be like us thinking about Iceland or, or some other relatively small country becoming a world leader. You know, and prophesying that these things would take place. People would have laughed at Daniel at the time because it seemed so preposterous. And yet we know these things have come to pass. So let's jump into the text, Daniel chapter eight. And we read in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar. So we're given the details again. Belshazzar, this grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, has come to the throne uh, pretty ungodly character. Uh, and it's now just the third year of his reign. Daniel's still serving. Daniel says, a vision appeared unto me, even unto me, Daniel. Interestingly, he says that. It's almost as if he's like, just to, to give us that uh, confidence that this is actually Daniel. This is the Daniel that we've met, that we've known, we've been introduced to through this study. Daniel says, it was to me. I got this vision. This wasn't to someone else. Uh, after that which appeared to me at the first. Now, the first he refers to is the vision we looked at last week in chapter seven. He's already had that vision. A couple of years later, he now gets this vision, which is going to expand on the things that he'd seen already. And he says, I was, uh, I saw in a vision and it came to pass what I saw that I was at Shushan. Okay, we'll see this place also known as Susa, but Shushan in the palace. Now, Daniel says, notice that I was at Shushan. Now, there are commentators that will argue and say, well, Daniel never went to this place. Uh, and there's some silly um, 
arguments that are put forward. Uh, but Daniel himself says he's there in the palace, which is in the province of Elam. Elam, one of the sons of Shem who settled in this area. And I saw in a vision and was by the river of Ule. Okay, to look on a map, you can see there we've got Jerusalem. We're familiar with, of course, the Mediterranean area. Um, Daniel would have been taken all the way across to Babylon originally, this journey. And that's where most of the action of the book of Daniel takes place. But here we are now over across in Shushan, a really significant place. You'll notice there's two other little dots there. Ektana uh, is there and Persopolis, uh, this other place. These two places are really significant. They were places of conquest for the Persian Empire, uh, really kind of military significant locations. Uh, if you do a bit of history, you'll, you'll understand and you'll dig into that. But Daniel, right over here, a long way away from home now, um, but come over here. Clearly, this becomes one of the, the most important places in the Persian Empire. It's located, as you can see, as we just saw on the map there, about 230 miles east of Babylon, uh, about 150 miles north of the tip of the Persian Gulf. Uh, and it's midway between, as I said, Ektana and Persopolis. It was formerly the capital of the Elamites. Again, he was the eldest son of Shem, as I mentioned. Uh, and later it becomes the main residence of the Persian kings as the center of their empire. And you can see from the map that pretty much for the Persian empire, it was, it was geographically kind of central. Um, they had a famous palace there built by uh, Darius I. Now, again, uh, this tie, this name is more of a title than a, just a, a kind of a first name. Uh, but later it was in, enlarged by Xerxes and it becomes the home of Queen Esther. OK, so this is the location of all the events that take place in the book of Esther. It was also the city that Nehemiah had been serving in, in Nehemiah chapter one, when he asked permission of uh, the king to be able to return back to Jerusalem to re rebuild the city. Now, just a historical point here. It was also the place where the, the code of uh, Hammurabi uh, was found in 1901. Now, that's a picture you can see there on the right of the screen of this uh, uh, cylinder obelisk type thing. Uh, it's very significant. It was a legal document, effectively, uh, with legal writing on it. It was discovered um, not that long ago uh, in the scheme of things, but it, it dates back to the time of Jacob's lifetime. All right, it's the longest uh, surviving, uh, also the oldest and best organized text that we have preserved from the ancient Near East. And uh, it was believed to be written by this Hammurabi, who was the sixth king of the first dynasty of Babylon. So before the time that we've been looking at, um, we just read this. Uh, the steel was discovered in 1901. So I said not that long ago it was discovered at the site of Susa in present day Iran, where it had been taken as plunder 600 years after its creation. The text itself was copied and studied by Mesopotamian scribes for over a millennium. Uh, the steel now resides in the Louvre Museum uh, in Paris. Of course, some of you may have been to the Louvre. Great place. Uh, I had the uh, pleasure on our honeymoon. Joy and I went to Paris and uh, we had a great day at the Louvre. Now, if you ask Joy, she may not say it was a great day, but I absolutely loved it. Um, so a lot of great history there, including this uh, particular item. Now, in the palace uh, or the palace of uh, Darius, you still see the remains that are there to this day. Um, part of the, the remains, you can see again, have been rebuilt to try and replicate some of what it would have been like. Um, there is a, a, a inscription uh, that's been found that's now in the Louvre also, uh, supposedly written by Darius. He says, the palace which I built at Susa. So again, just confirming that he was the one that had really tried to make this a place. That's an artist impression of what it may have looked like in its heyday. Um, but even today, it's a populated place. You can see there, there's a civilization, there's life going on, uh, lots of houses and streets. And you see lampposts in the background there of the picture. Just about to zoom in and see that. Uh, another thing historically that we have from this area, um, this is again, I think this is in the British Museum at the moment, but it's on loan from the Louvre. Um, this is a, a glazed brick guardsman. Now, I just showed this because it's significant because it's right from the time that we're talking about. Uh, it says this was part of a frieze depicting rows of guards. Uh, the vivid colours show how the carved stone sculptures would have looked when they were painted. The guards are thought to be members of a thousand special royal guards. They were said to have formed part of the royal army known as the Immortals because their strength was always apparently maintained at this level. So always a thousand of them. Now, I just show that because I think it's interesting. This is a time that Daniel's living in. Daniel's in a position of authority 
and you get an idea of the strength. You sometimes, I guess, we're, we're victims of our Sunday school books and so on, where we depict uh, Daniel and that, uh, just a kind of a small little local thing, not many people. Now, this was a mighty empire. Uh, you know, these thousand special royal guards. And Daniel was in a position of authority over these. Now, interestingly, at Susa or Shushan, there is today uh, this tomb of Daniel. Uh, of course, it's a Muslim country uh, in Iran today, um, but it's believed to be the, where the remains of Daniel have been taken. There's quite a comical story about what happened to the remains. They were on one side of the river and that side of the river seemed to prosper. So they decided they would move it to the other side of the river and that side of the river, the people, the inhabitants there prospered. And so every year or so, they would bring the remains from one side back to the other until eventually they said, oh, this isn't right. And they, they built this memorial in the shrine. Now, whether they really are Daniel's remains, I don't know. But nevertheless, there is this shrine there. Uh, this tomb presumed to be the location where Daniel's remains are interred. So anyway, a little bit about Susan. This is where it was all taking place, uh, where this vision happens. And then I lifted up mine eyes and saw and behold, there stood before the river a ram which had two horns and the two horns were high. But one was higher than the other and the higher came up last. Now, Coming to the chase, we're going to get to verse 20 and we're going to find there that this ram with these two horns is representing the kings of Media and Persia. Now, you remember, we have these two rival nations, effectively, and Cyrus is the one with a Persian uh, mother and a Median father. I think that was the right way around. Uh, but they, Cyrus manages to unite these two empires or these nations into this great empire together. Uh, and so this vision now that we're seeing uh, this Ram with these two horns is representing the kingdoms of Media and Persia together. Now, the fact that one horn is higher than the other speaks to the fact that Persia was stronger than Media. Uh, Persia has started its rise to power after Media. So it kind of comes up afterwards. So this prophecy, very significant. Now, remember again, Daniel is living at a time where these things, these things were starting to happen, but they weren't fulfilled as Daniel is seeing them. Now, we saw a similar idiom in the previous chapter with a bear, if you remember, being raised up on one side. Now, interestingly enough, the ram had long been associated with the Persian kingdom, both in mythology and in practice. The Persian kings would often take off their royal crowns and they would wear this kind of ram's head um, sometimes made from the skull of a, a ram and made into kind of like a, a crown as they would go into battle. They would believe to give them some sort of strength. In ancient cultures, Persia was associated with Ares in the sign of the Zodiac, uh, which is, you may be familiar, is the ram. Uh, verse 4 says, And I saw the ram pushing westward and northward and southward. Notice there's something missing there from our cardinal points. So westward, northward and southward. Nothing's mentioned about east. Uh, so that no beast might stand before him. Neither was there any that could deliver out of his hand. These are all very specific statements. But he did according to his will and became great. So this is the vision that Daniel is seeing of this creature, this ram that's pushing in three directions and nothing is able to withhold him. Daniel looks on and again sees the ram pushing in those three directions. Now, history confirms that those were the directions that the Medo-Persian army went in. East of Persia, the, the direction that's missed here, was India. And it remained untouched by the Persian kings. The Bible, very specific and accurate in the details in these prophecies. Remember, Daniel was looking forward. These events hadn't taken place. Persia was still not the world empire. Babylon was still ruling and reigning. This was only the third year of Belshazzar at this time. The other significant thing we see is an allusion here to Xerxes, who will come on the scene later. Now, Xerxes was the last of the great rulers of Persia. Now, there were others after him, but he was the, the kind of the, the of Cyrus, of course, is often mentioned. But Xerxes was a, a formidable character at the height of the Persian Empire. Xerxes fielded a two and a half million man army. And indeed, none could deliver out of his hand, just as the prophecy said. Xerxes made an ill-fated attempt, though, to move against Greece. This is a very significant. Now, bear with me, bit of history, but this is important. Uh, by early 480 BC, um, so sometime after the, the events that we're looking at now, almost 100 years after this, uh, preparations were complete and Xerxes' army marched towards Europe. 
Now, in Europe, we've got the Athenian-led Greeks have been preparing for war. They knew that this was coming uh, under the guidance of an Athenian politician, uh, Themistocles uh, was his name. And he spread the rumour that the Greeks were disbanding uh, and lured the Persians into this narrow piece of water. They went with all their vessels between a place called Salmis and the mainland. And history records that there's about 378 Greek ships, that that's all the Greeks had at the time, and they, they had some allies with them. But compared to about 1,200, 1,207 Persian vessels that were ready for war, uh, conservative scholars suggest that it could have been maybe six to 800, but some records say up to about 1,200 uh, the vessels they had. So Greece would clearly at least outnumber two to one uh, in this contest. So there's no way you would expect Greece to win this battle against the mighty Persia of Xerxes. Yet Greece wins the victory. Incredibly. Now this is considered by some scholars as one of the most significant battles in history. And I'll tell you why it's significant to us in a moment. Now the events are taking place here. You can see on the screen uh, this here is the area of Salmis. This is the, this little island. And the, the Persian army have been kind of led into this uh, area uh, where the Greeks um, supported with others from uh, Macedonia above and so on. And they uh, won this decisive victory. You, you, get, you see here uh, around the top of the screen, all in the orange, that's the Persian Empire. This full weight of the, the empire coming against these small you know, little city-states of Greece, really. Macedonia and so on. Um, so you get an idea of just how significant the battle really was. That's just a, a zoom in of this battle of Salamis uh, and so on. And again, if you want to Google it from a history point of view, it's just fascinating how they uh, the Greeks won this battle. But nevertheless, a significant number of historians, as I said, actually state that this is probably one of the most significant battles in history because it paved the way for the rise of Greece. That in turn... For us, it's significant because it led to a universal language. Why is that significant? Well, because it allowed a mechanism for the gospel to be spread. So the Greek language became a language that then permeated pretty much all cultures. And because of that, and because of the Greeks learning and everything else that went along with that, the gospel, by the time we get a few 400 years later after this, by the time Jesus comes, the gospel could spread around the world. There was never a better time for Jesus to come. We're told that uh, Jesus uh, was one that was born at the right time uh, in history. Well, Xerxes was ultimately forced to return to Persia. As I said, he was humiliated and despondent. Uh, interestingly enough, by the way, he throws a party uh, and his wife refuses to dance at that party. So he has a uh, cast out effectively. And that leads to the narrative of the book of Esther. All these things tie in the secular history and the biblical history. Fascinating. When you look at them together, you see why some of the events took place. But Daniel, back to the vision, says, I was considering and behold a he goat. So this is a male goat now comes from the rest. So this ram is there pushing all this, but then a he-goat comes from the west. Now think where Persia is on the map. West of Persia was Greece. This he-goat comes from the west on the face of the whole earth and touched not the ground. It's going so fast. And the he-goat had a notable horn between his eyes. Horns are often seen as a symbol of power in scripture and so on. So Daniel's watching, thinking this through. And again, remember the Medes of the Persians were subservient to the king of Babylon at this time. And it had been all Daniel's life. So it must have been hard for Daniel to grasp that Babylon was not going to lose its dominance to the Medo-Persian Empire, but then another empire is going to come onto the scene that's going to be even more powerful than the Medo-Persian Empire. And suddenly this male goat comes flying from the west. And again, notice this impressive horn is between its eyes. And he came to the ram that had two horns, and which I had seen standing before the river, and ran unto him in the fury of his power. Notice that expression, fury. You get the clear impression that this um, goat that is coming, this he-goat, this male goat, is cross, is unhappy. And that's exactly what we'll find historically was the case. I'll explain why in a moment. And I saw him come close unto the ram, and he was moved with collar against him and smote the ram and broke his two horns, and there was no power in the ram to stand before him. And he cast him down to the ground and stamped upon him. And there was none that could deliver the ram out of his hand. Now, that's what Daniel's seeing in the vision. Daniel's going to have it explained to him in a minute. But just so that we're clear on what's going on. Verse 21 is going to tell us that the male goat is representative of the kingdom of Greece. And that verse 22 will confirm that the notable horn is the first king. 
Now, of course, there were other kings in the area of Greece and particularly Macedon. We'll talk about that in a second. Um, but Daniel, uh, sorry, Alexander was the first king of Greece proper, uh, united all of these city states together and brought them together. Uh, of course, Alexander, uh, we're familiar with from history, as we mentioned earlier. Now, it corresponds with the vision in chapter two of that belly and thigh of brass we mentioned at the beginning. Uh, and then also of the leopard that we saw depicted in Daniel chapter seven. All of these depicting the same things, just like different camera angles, if you want, uh, just to give us a p- picture of what this is like. Now, there'd long been a rivalry between the Medo-Persian and the Macedonian Empire. Macedonia was north of Greece. Now, Philip of Macedon, who was Alexander's father, was murdered. And it was believed to have been by a conspiracy that had been masterminded by Darius of Persia. So now you see why when Alexander moves against Persia, there was a lot of venom there. He was intent on destroying because he was looking for revenge for his father's death. And so when Alexander comes to the throne as a young, just 19 or 20 year old man, he didn't need a lot of encouragement in going after Darius and the Persians, uh, who, as we said already, he duly defeated in these few decisive battles. Alexander's kingdom had indeed surpassed anything that existed up to this time, as prophetically Daniel is seeing in his vision. In just six years, it stretched all the way from Greece to India. Uh, if Persia was associated with the ram, again, in this vision we see in Greece, was certainly associated with a goat. Various stories in Greek folklore were centered around a goat. In fact, Alexander's son, uh, when he was born, was named Alexander Agus, which was literally the son of the goat. So Alexander is pictured as a goat. So the biblical idioms that are used are, again, significant because they are the same ideas we find in the secular narratives as well. In addition, some of Alexander's successors are represented on coins with goat horns on them as well. So Daniel's being told again what's going to happen at this point, at least 200 years in the future. Imagine getting that kind of vision. Can't, we can't imagine if the Lord were to tarry what this world would be like in 200 years from now. You know, you think 200 years ago, even from where we are now, what the world was like and how many changes have gone on. Well, this is the kind of thing that Daniel is seeing and trying to get it all in his head. Verse 8, we read, Therefore the he-goat, Alexander's Greece, waxed very great. And when he was strong, the great horn was broken. So uh, in the sense that the height of his power... The great horn, Alexander, was broken, and we know that's exactly what happened. For it came, uh, for it came up four notable ones toward the four winds of heaven. So Greece got stronger and stronger under Alexander, and he even succeeded in uniting the Macedonians and the Persians. Incredibly, and he enlisted many foreigners into his army to make it strong. But at the age of thirty-two, as we mentioned, he died. And it's famously reported on his death, but he was asked, to whom shall the empire be given? And he answered, give it to the strong. That's a statement uh, historically that we have. And this leads to then the division of the Greek empire under these four generals uh, whom Alexander uh, effectively uh, given the nod to. Uh, Daniel chapter 7 verse 6, if you remember back last week, foretold that the powerful Greek empire was going to be divided into four. And that's exactly what we're seeing repeated in this vision. And within a year of Alexander's death, the empire was divided up between these four generals. Uh, Antigonus uh, took Babylon, uh, but later he was uh, supplanted, if you like, um, by uh, Seleucus, uh, this other individual. Very significant for our reasons. We'll come on to that in a moment. The second area was Ptolemy. He was actually one of Alexander's closest aides and uh, friends, uh, and he was given the opportunity to take a larger portion, but he chose to take Egypt. Um, but very strong and took the the uh, area of North Africa and Egypt area. Cassandra took what is known as Macedonia or the Greek area. Uh, and then Lysimachus took Asia Minor. If we look at all that on a map, so it makes it clear. Then Cassandra, the area of Greece, Lysimachus, the area of modern day Turkey. Seleucus is the one that ends up with pretty much the, the lion's share of the, the, the geography, uh, Iran, Iraq, all that area. Uh, and then we've got Ptolemy down in Egypt. But you note now that in the middle Between Ptolemy and Seleucus, there's this area of Israel. And so Israel now sits right between these two rival parts of the Greek empire that Alexander had had. 
I mentioned already that the scholars sometimes speak of 400 silent years between the close of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New. But we're going to see all of that in incredible prophecies uh, are detailed in advance in Daniel chapter 11. We'll get there uh, and the Lord willing in a few weeks time. Verse nine says, and out of one of them, so out of one of these four divisions came forth a little horn. So let's not get confused. So Alexander the Great is represented as this horn on this goat. But then we find that the, the empire is divided four ways. And out of one of those parts, another ruler or little horn is going to come up, which wax exceedingly great toward the south and toward the east and toward, interesting expression here, the pleasant land. All right. What's the pleasant land? Israel. Very significant. So we're now introduced to this horn. Okay, so don't be confused, as I said, with the horn in the previous chapter that we saw there. In chapter seven, there was a little horn mentioned, and it was seen to come from among the ten horns. So just be clear on all these things. In chapter seven, there are ten horns, and there's another horn that rises up. Just just understand when we talk about these horns, it's speaking about an individual or power or authority that's coming up. So there was these ten horns in the previous one, and a third horn, sorry, a, a, another horn came up which subdued three of the ten. That was in the previous chapter, and we identified them as ten kings. They're going to come from the old uh, revived Roman Empire. But here, this little horn is going to come out of the four horns of the Greek Empire as it was. Okay, that arose out of Alexander's uh, time. So again, this comes out of the remains of the Greek Empire, and we're told that he waxed exceedingly great toward the south east, and the pleasant land, which, as I said, is Israel. And it waxed great even to the host of heaven. Now we're going to look at these expressions because they're quite significant. What does it mean that this horn, this individual, waxed great, even boasting effectively against the host of heaven? And it cast down some of the host and the stars to the ground and stamped upon them. Well, we need to do a, a flashback, only we need to flash forward, uh, because in the book of Revelation, we've got a very similar expression in chapter 12. We read there, there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads, and his tail drew a third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the ground. Now, in Revelation, we noted when we did our study some years ago, the notes are still online, uh, that at the midpoint of the time of tribulation that's coming, which is just prior to the commencement of the Great Tribulation itself, the last three and a half years, Satan is going to be thrown out of heaven once and for all. He loses his access, if you like, to heaven. Even now, Satan has access to heaven. He's accused of the brethren. He accuses day and night before the throne. But that will be revoked. He will have no access to heaven. He'll be cast down and the earth will become his abode. He won't have anywhere else to go. Uh, but we find that uh, the passage in Revelation speaks of the fact that he drew a third of the angels, a third of the stars with him. Uh, and it speaks, of course, his rebellion against God when a third of the angels also rebelled and went with Satan. Now, there is in this portion we're going to look at what's referred to sometimes the law of double reference. Uh, it's not uncommon for a prophetic scripture uh, to be given this label. Okay, Now, simply this law, as uh, commentators have tried to codify, is the fact that often a passage or a block of scripture is speaking of two different persons or two different events that are separated by a long period of time. So in other words, it's like an overlay. We've got the original event that's being spoken of, but there's a prophetic element that sits over the top and dovetails the details. So it's like we have a dress rehearsal for something else that's yet to come. So two events, one in the, the near vision and one in the future vision of these things. OK, so in the near view, we have this little horn that we're going to discover is this individual by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. Um, this also has this distant or future fulfillment. And we're going to find that Antiochus is a model or a type of Antichrist. And Jesus himself is going to make reference to this. So it's really significant that we understand and important we understand. Uh, one of the great Bible scholars, Finnis uh, Jennings Dake, in his reference Bible, commentated that the word host is translated from the Hebrew word uh, sabbath, which means a mass of persons or things, especially organized for war he goes on and says this the words host and hosts are used 475 times of various armies of earth and heaven as well as the mass of stars the term host of heaven is used of the sun moon and stars and here in this verse 
of the high priest. Okay, the priest and the Levites is a technical term for the ministers of the temple. The host may include the worshippers. They are pictured under the figure of stars of heaven. The fact that the host will be trodden under the foot of men proves it refers to the Jewish people on earth and not literal stars of heaven. So what Dake's saying is that in this verse, the reference is that an individual, this person we know to be Antiochus, is going to come onto the world scene and he's going to wax grade. He's going to uh, stand up against the priests and those Levites and those worshipping in the temple in Jerusalem. And this is exactly what we find takes place. Now, if, of course, this is the case, then the verse is prophesying that he's going to do all of these things. Now, this must have been astonishing for Daniel at this point, because at the point that Daniel is getting the vision, the temple is laying in ruins. There is no priests and worshippers back in Jerusalem. So imagine what Daniel is trying to process now. All these world empires are going to come onto the scene. That Clearly, Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt because there's got to be this offering and the sacrificing and so on. So lots of things Daniel is trying to process. Uh, but we learn again from history that this is something that actually did indeed take place. Now, the historian Josephus and one of the apocryphal books, First Maccabees, actually record this event. Um, so don't be frightened by the Apocrypha. It's not part of the Bible, but there are some useful historical comments in there. We have to be a little bit careful. Not all it's good history. There's some embellishments in some of these Apocryphal books, um, but there is some history in there as well. And in First Maccabees, certainly it makes record of the event that we're about to talk about. And we read of this individual, this horn that's going to come up out of the one of the divisions of the Greek Empire. Yea, he magnified himself even to the prince of the host. Uh, and by him, the daily sacrifice was taken away. Now, remember, the Jews were to offer sacrifices daily in the temple. Well, this individual, we're told, is going to stop that happening. And the place of his sanctuary was cast down. So the place where the priest would offer is going to be destroyed, effectively. And a host was given uh, him against the daily sacrifice by reason of transgression. And it cast down to the, the truth to the ground and it practiced and prospered. What does all that mean? Well, we're going to see exactly what took place because we have the benefit of history to explain these prophecies to us. Uh, but Jesus, incidentally, points to these two verses, uh, 11 and 12 of Daniel chapter 8, as the key to understanding end time prophecy. Because they speak of what was going to happen. And Jesus said, just as it happened then, so it will happen again. This is why it's important that we understand these things, because then we get a good take on what is to come. Jesus, remember, or in Matthew's gospel, we're told, he who hears, let him understand. There's a mandate for all of us to get our heads around this. Now, if we look at these uh, two rival dynasties, effectively, the Ptolemaic dynasty, which took over the area of Egypt after Alexander the Great, and the Seleucids, uh, which took over the, the northern, effectively, the uh, Iran, Iraq, and all that region. Uh, and they, they spoke of being north because in regard to Israel, Whenever they would come to Israel, because of the desert that was in between, they would come in from Syria direction. They'd come in from the north. So we're going to find prophetically these titles are given. The kings of the south, referring to the Ptolemaic dynasty, and then the Seleucids or the kings of the north, because although they're strictly speaking east, actually when they come to Israel, they come from the north direction because they loop up and they come down. So don't be confused by that. Um, now, those are the, the key players, and we're going to look at a lot of the detail of this in chapter 11. So I'm not going to go through this now, and you need to worry too much about the history. But what is interesting is during Ptolemy II, Philadelphus, that we understand that the Old Testament was translated into Greek. There's a Greek version of the Old Testament known as Septuagint. Now, there's some interesting comments to be made around that. We haven't got the time this morning. But just to give you a, a taste of that, was roughly 270 BC that took place now. A little later on, we get to this individual that we're now interested in, Antiochus Epiphanes. So this is out of the, the Alexander's kingdom, divided into four. And of one of those, which will be the king of the north, the Seleucid, uh, we find that one of these, the, this little horn is going to rise, uh, which is Antiochus Epiphanes. What do we know about him? Well, he was part of the Seleucid Empire, as we've seen, that had come to power following Alexander's death. Now, according to um, 1 Maccabees, again, that apocryphal book, and other historical records, Antiochus was the eighth king of the Syrian dynasty, and he reigned from 175 to 164 BC. So we're getting closer to the time of Christ now. 
He ascended to the throne after the death of his father and the imprisonment by Rome of his elder brother, uh, Seleucid Philopater. Um, now, Antiochus was not the rightful heir. Now, this is significant, too. Uh, Seleucus also had a son who should have been the one to ascend to the position of power. But somehow, uh, by flattery and bribery, Antiochus succeeds in becoming king. And all this was prophesied. He invades Egypt and defeats Ptolemy uh, VI. Uh, but on his way back, he stops off at Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem, as we've seen already on the map, in between these two rival factions of the old Alexander's empire. Uh, Jerusalem was sitted, right, situated right in between the Seleucid and Ptolemaic empires and acted as a buffer zone, if you like, between these two rival kingdoms. And you can imagine that the Jews were not very enamoured by this. They tried to resist Antiochus. Um, Epiphanes is the, the name, uh, but it's an abbreviation of the Greek Theos Epiphanes, or uh, this designation he gave himself, the God who appears or reveals himself. He, he gives himself a very exalted title, um, or the illustrious one, but implying divinity, a uh, very proud individual. Uh, but the Jews, out of contempt, call him Epimenes, uh, which literally means the madman. Um, so they had no love for this individual whatsoever. But Antiochus then undertakes the total eradication of the Jewish religion. I and mean, we've seen that before through history and we'll see it again. Uh, and tries to establish Greek polytheism in its stead. Now, the observance of all the Jewish laws, especially those related to the Sabbath and to circumcision, were forbidden under pain of death. You can imagine what this was like to the Jews at the time. And all Jewish practices were set aside and in all the cities of Judea, the sacrifices must be brought to the pagan deities. Now, representatives of the crown everywhere tried to enforce this edict. So throughout the whole of Antiochus's uh, kingdom, effectively, uh, once a month, a search was apparently uh, uh, instituted and whoever had a secret copy of the law, the Torah, or had observed the right of circumcision was condemned to death. They really tried to stamp out Judaism completely. But in Jerusalem, on the 15th of Chislev in the Jewish calendar, it was December, in 168 BC, uh, we find that uh, he broke the league or the agreement that he made with them. Now, this is interesting because it means Antiochus had made some sort of covenant with Israel. But then he breaks this agreement with them at this point, roughly about three years, three and a half years in to this agreement. Now, a pagan altar was then built at the, in the temple, the great altar of burnt sacrifice. Uh, he also stripped the temple of its treasures. He pillaged the city of Jerusalem took away about 10,000 people captive and compelled them to forsake the worship of Jehovah. Uh, again, circumcision was forbidden and they crucified any violators to that. And the Torah reading was also forbidden and destroyed. Now, it's a Josephus who records that for us in his Antiquities of the Jews. Now, again, on this particular date, 25th of Chislev, it happened to be his birthday. Uh, a sacrifice was brought to the altar for the first time. First Maccabees records this. And Josephus tells us they actually offered a pig, a swine in every village, as well as on the altar in the temple. They had erected an idol to Zeus in the Holy of Holies. Now, this should start to go, oh, because this is what we're told is going to happen with Antichrist. He's going to do all of these things. Again, this is like a dress rehearsal. It's all history, it all took place, but it's a dress rehearsal of what is going to happen. And this desolating sacrilege, this, uh, this image to Zeus is placed in the temple uh, and so on. Now, um, again, this is what Jesus referred to as the abomination of desolation. Uh, and again, this temple is given over to be this temple of Jupiter. Uh, first Maccabees, we get this. Uh, and the king sent letters by messengers to Jerusalem and the cities of Judah. He directed them to follow customs strange to the land, to forbid burnt offerings and sacrifices and drink, drink offerings in the sanctuary, to profane the Sabbath and feast, to defile the sanctuary and the priests, to build altars in sacred precincts and shrines for idols, to sacrifice swine and unclean animals and to leave their sons uncircumcised. They were made themselves, uh, they were to make themselves abominable by everything unclean and profane so that they as the jews should forget the law and change the ordinances notice that he was going to change the laws and times when we're told in scripture this is exactly what he tried to do and whoever does not obey the command of the king shall die so that's recorded for us history in first maccabees now this leads 
More history here, but leads to the Maccabean revolt because clearly the Jews were extremely unhappy at this situation and this vile persecution of them as a nation. So this revolt starts to build into a full-scale war. And what triggers it was the arrival of some of uh, Antiochus' officials to carry out his decrees in the village of Medin, okay, where an aged priest by the name of Matthias uh, lived with his five sons. Now, Matthias ends up killing these representatives that come. There's a Jew that tried to uh, offer pagan offerings and, and sacrifice there. Uh, and there was another royal official who presided there. And Matthias kills both of them. Now, as a result of that, get this, he has to flee to the hills. And it's interesting because we'll find this is exactly what is going to happen with Israel. They will indeed have to flee from Jerusalem. Jesus said, pray that your flight be not in winter on the Sabbath. But this time is coming when the Jews will be forced to flee when this rerun of these events takes place. Now, Matthias and his five sons became the nucleus of a growing band of uh, rebels against Antiochus. And you see the names of his son there, uh, sons there. But the interesting one we're, the one we're most interested in is Judas Maccabees, uh, also known as the Hammer. Uh, kind of probably significant title. Um, but Matthias soon dies and it leaves the leadership of this kind of uh, rebellion to his son, Judas Maccabees. Where hence, we get the title of the Maccabean uh, revolt or the Maccabees and so on. Um, and so his name becomes that kind of source of, um, um, they all kind of follow under his banner and his leadership. And clearly he was a really brilliant strategician, uh, strategician uh, and uh, so on, and knew how to lead and so on. And what had begun as this guerrilla war suddenly turns into a full-scale military engagements uh, in which this smaller Jewish forces managed to defeat this much more powerful Syrian army under the control of Antiochus. Uh, Judah's most notable achievements were the recapture of Jerusalem, uh, except for the Acre fortress, where the Syrian garrison continued to hold out, uh, but also the rededication of the temple after the defiled altar had been demolished and rebuilt. Now, you'll probably be familiar with this because this leads to the Feast of Hanukkah, and I'm sure you're familiar with uh, uh, history where the uh, menorah was uh, run out of oil. They only had one day supply and yet they light it and it lasts for the entire seven days it would take them to make the new oil. That leads to this festival of light or the um, festival of Hanukkah uh, and so on. So that's again just the link in history as to where that comes from and why. Um, and as a result of these things, Antiochus' uh, death then took place uh, in, in uh, 164 BC. Judas uh, continued uh, successfully to press for what now was a war of independence. And his last great victory over the forces uh, of uh, these uh, rival forces occurs uh, at Nicor at Beth Horon in March of 161 BC. Let's get back into the text with all of that said. So then I heard one saint speaking and another saint said unto that certain saint we spoke, how long? shall be the vision concerning the daily sacrifice and the transgression of desolation to give both the sanctuary and the host to be trodden underfoot. And he said unto me, under 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Now, I'm sure you're all wondering, what does this 2,300 days refer to? And if you look in commentaries, you'll find a number of ideas that are postulated. But it's reasonable to assume the, the answer that's given in verse 14 is the response to the question that's asked in verse 13. It seems to make a lot of sense if you just read it. But it's amazing when you realize that there are so many various interpretations of what these 2,300 days actually mean, and indeed even what they're referring to, which really shouldn't be a question. Well, let's just mention a man by the name of William Miller. He was an American Baptist preacher and also a Freemason. Uh, he proposed that the days actually meant years and that the sanctuary actually referred to the earth. Well, there's certainly no reason to assume the sanctuary refers to the earth. There's no reference to that whatsoever. But anyway, he concluded that after 2,300 years, the earth was going to be cleansed and Jesus is going to return. Now, Miller became convinced that this 2,300-year period started in 457 with a decree 
to rebuild Jerusalem by Artaxerxes I of Persia. Now, the problem we have is the first mistake is that that wasn't when that decree was given. It wasn't given until 445 BC. It was the 20th year of Artaxerxes. That's what Nehemiah tells us. So for a start, William Miller started at the wrong point. So it's not promising. But as a result of the the things he put forward, uh, his calculation was that Christ was going to return in 1843. Now, he records this. Uh, I was thus brought to the solemn conclusion that in about 25 years from that time, he was in 1818 at the time, all the affairs of our present state would be wound up. So he actually makes this bold declaration. Now, as most people are aware, Jesus did not return in 1843. Now, that makes Miller uh, Miller kind of a false prophet at best. Um, But it's from this that we get the foundation of the Seventh-day Adventist movement. Uh, But it's also worth noting that the JWs also lean on Miller's understanding of biblical prophecy. So just beware that those things are out there. And a lot of it comes from this verse in Daniel, which clearly Miller did not understand and didn't interpret correctly. Uh, If he just simply checked his theory against the whole counsel of God, rather than taking one verse out of context, it's unlikely he'd have made the error in the first place. We always need to stick to the whole counsel of God. Okay, so let's get to the question then. How do we understand the verse? Well, clearly the reference is to the question, how long for the sanctuary in the temple in Jerusalem to remain desolate until it's finally to be cleansed? That's the question that's put forward. So that's what the answer's got to be in regard to. Well, we know when it was cleansed. So actually we can do it the other way. We can work backward and then we can try and understand because we know that it was done. It was cleansed. We can start the other end of the scale of 2,300 whatever and get back to the beginning. Now, the period of time we know was 164 BC. It's the first Hanukkah. That's when the temple was cleansed in the winter of that year and so on. Now, if we take the days as literal 24 hours, then we have a period of just short of seven years. Now, that might work because it could correspond to the time between Antiochus's first incursion into Jerusalem in 170 BC until the cleansing of the temple by Judas Maccabees in 164. That would give us this period of seven years or so. However, verse 13 specifically says it's the period in time that the question is concerning the daily sacrifice. So we've got to look at that as a as kind of a trigger for this uh, and the transgression of desolation, which didn't occur until 167 BC, about three years prior to that. So the literal 24-hour day interpretation doesn't quite fit with what we know historically. So how are we to understand it? Well, again, we seem to have a problem here, but we need to remember that we're reading a translation. And whenever we have these kind of issues, it's always worth checking because we've now got great tools. We can look at what the Hebrew and the Greek of the original manuscripts actually said. We do that uh, and we find, of course, that the the translators normally get it right. And certainly the King James, very good translation into English. But there are occasions when things are not necessarily translated wrong, but they they don't help to uh, clarify the situation. Right. The Hebrew in the verse doesn't actually use the word day as a Hebrew word yom, but it's rather erev and boka. And that's the same words we get in the days of creation, interestingly enough. Um, But it simply means evening and mornings. Now, that's significant to a Jew. To you and I, it may not mean as much. Um, but this evening and morning, the Jews would think in terms of their sacrifices. And that's what this question is in regard to. So if we're talking about 2,300 evening and mornings, we're talking about the number of sacrifices. So the number of actual days would only equal half of that because they'd sacrifice in the morning. They'd sacrifice in the evening. That cuts our time frame down to 1,150 days. Now, is that significant? Well, yes, it is. Because the verse would seem to be saying uh, that that will be the period of time from this setting up of this idol and the desecration of the temple and so on, that there's going to be 1,150 days, which actually works out to 110 days short of the three and a half years. So it's actually three years, two months and 10 days. And it fits with what we know from history. It's consistent with what the text actually says. So I don't think it's any more complicated than that. We just need to understand the words that are used in the original and it helps to clarify So it came to pass that when I, even I, Daniel, had seen the vision and sought for the meaning, then behold, there stood before me as the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of Ulai, the river, which called and said, Gabriel, obviously angel Gabriel now coming to explain to Daniel, make this man to understand the vision. Now, we've gone through a lot of this, so we can go through these verses a little quicker now. 
Christ. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was afraid and fell upon my face. Uh, and he said unto me, Understand, O son of man, for at the time of the end shall be the vision. Interesting to note here, Daniel's told that the vision refers to the time of the end, and yet we know that it occurred within a few hundred years of these things. Now, why this is significant is we've noted already that we've got the history that we've already had fulfilled, prophetically given to us in this prophecy in Daniel 8. But there's also a future prophecy for the end time that we've not yet got to. The, the uh, Antiochus part two, if you like, was Antichrist will do the same things, desecrate the temple, put an image of himself in the temple, will stop the offering and sacrificing, force the Jews to flee. Uh, all of these things will be replayed. <clears throat> so, Again, whilst we have the historic fulfillment, there is a yet a future fulfillment. This little horn, Antichrist, is going to arise. He's going to do all of these things, and we've just said. Now, in the same way that the 2,300 evenings and mornings, or 110 days, short of the three and a half years, Jesus said to the Jews, except those days should be shortened. When speaking of this time, he says that those days will be shortened. Now, is that an indication of what is going to take place? He says, for the elect's sake, for the Jews' sake, those days will be shortened. So I just throw that out there because it could play very interestingly into how these things work out. There will still be coming these two periods of three and a half years. But how long will that image remain? Uh, well, potentially, if we are to take this as a model, it will be short of the full three and a half years. Although that period will play out in full, maybe the offering, the, the, sorry, the, the image in the temple won't be there for the entire three and a half years. I'll just throw that out as an interesting thought. Now, as he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep on my face toward the ground, but he touched me and set me upright. And he said, behold, I will make thee know what shall be in the last end of the indignation, for at the time appointed, the end shall be. And then we have the explanation. We've seen all this. We've talked about this already. The ram which thou sawest, having two horns of the kings of Mida and Persia, and the rough goat is the king of Greece. And the great horn that is between his eyes is the first king, Alexander. We've seen this already. Um, that, uh, now that being broken, where I stood four up for it. Four kingdoms shall stand up out of the nation, but not in his power. And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors are come to the full, a king of fierce countenance and understanding dark sentences shall stand up. Now, of course, this is speaking of Antiochus, but the overlay on this is also speaking of Antichrist. And his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. And he shall destroy wonderfully and shall prosper and practice and shall destroy the mighty and the holy people. Now, at this point, we get a slight change because the focus is initially on Antiochus and it starts to overlap. And now the the focus shifts to that of Antichrist, although both are in view here. It's interesting as we compare these two characters, Antiochus, what he was, Antichrist will be, and yet obviously much worse. Historically, Anti Antiochus destroyed impressively, is what the word implies, and fought against the holy people, the Jews. Prophetically, Antichrist will be unlike anyone before him. And he'll be allowed to prosper, to do what he likes, to launch an attack on the Jews that the Nazi Holocaust will seem tame in comparison to. And Zechariah and Jeremiah are your references for that statement. It's interesting also to note that both Antiochus and Antichrist, they do not function by their own power, but will be supernaturally empowered by the God of this world. Of Antichrist, or the beast, as we've referred to in Revelation 13, uh, we read that they worship the dragon which gave power unto the beast, and they worship the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast who is able to make war with him? Back into verse 25. And through his policy, he shall also cause craft to prosper. And some people say, well, witchcraft is that? Uh, no pun intended. Um, and he shall magnify himself in his heart and by peace shall destroy many. He shall also stand up against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without hand. And see, clearly now the vision is shifting its focus. And as we kind of lose clarity looking at Antiochus, so Antichrist really comes into view because he is the one that is going to stand up against Jesus Christ, the Prince of Princes. But we're told he will be broken with our hand, just as we're told in the New Testament that Jesus will destroy Antichrist with the brightness of his coming. You know, and gradually uh, the emphasis, as I say, just shifts now as uh, Antiochus kind of blurs a bit and Antichrist comes to the foreground. 
Well, Antichrist indeed is going to magnify himself in his heart. He's going to bring about a false peace. That's the white horse in Revelation 6 with that sign of the covenant, the bow. And he's going to stand up against Jesus, uh, but it will be broken without hand. And we're told the vision of the evening and morning, which was told is true. Now, interestingly, because that kind of gives us that clarification now of the 2300, it actually implies clearly in the text. Uh, once again, you know, the whole counsel of God is there. Anything that's confusing, once we read all of it, it all starts to fall in place, makes sense. The scripture explains uh, and interprets itself. And the vision of the evening and the morning, which was told is true. Wherefore, shut thou up the vision, for it shall be for many days. And Daniel concludes and says, and I, Daniel, fainted and was sick certain days, no doubt, trying to comprehend all of this. Afterward, I rose up and did the king's business. Notice 69-year-old man still serving the king, even though the king is a godless man, still being faithful. That which we do, we do unto the Lord. And I was astonished at the vision but none understood it. Well, we praise God that today as we read this with the benefit of history, with the other, other revelations in scripture, we can understand what Daniel saw, what it means and what it implies yet to come. Now, I'm not going to go through in the, the notes, but I'll just put these slides in. These are actually uh, Chuck Misler's works. So I don't claim that this is my uh, work, but there's a number of uh, ways in which we see uh, this type of antichrist played out here. We've mentioned those already, but there's a summary um, of those things. I'll leave them there. They'll be in the slides to look at. Interestingly, there's 33 references in the Old Testament, allusions, different names given to Antichrist. So we often use that expression and we tend to think of him under that name, but there's a number of scriptures where he find this individual referred to. So there's 33 in the Old and I think 13 or so in the New Testament, all speaking of this individual who is yet to come, who will be, in a sense, phase two of Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, the rerun. If you like, we've had the matinee, we're waiting for the full performance. It's coming, it's going to happen any moment now. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for this opportunity this morning to look at, to review, to study these scriptures, to be reminded that you are in complete control of history, Lord. All these things came to pass that were shown to Daniel as were foretold. The Persian Empire fell, the Greek Empire rose and then divided amongst four. Antiochus came, did all those things to the Jews that were recorded. And of course, we see that he has a type of what is to come. Father, may prophecy give us that confidence in your word to know that you have foretold what has been and you have given us in your word what will be, that we can trust your word. Help us, Lord, to be lights. Lord, as we were reminded this morning in our verse of the week, that shine brightly, Lord, that others would see and would glorify our Father in heaven. We just thank you for this time. Lord, bless us and keep us close to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.